The Austin Workers' Council Strike, 1974, Part 4. You can sit in it, but that's my chair. happened that weekend the Saturday and Sunday the 18th and 19th of May 1974 first among them was Merlin Reese's declaration of a state of emergency although on the ground people with the army already patrolling the streets in the province in utter chaos could not work out exactly what else such a declaration could entail the most significant occurrence that weekend however was the Treble UC coalition finally throwing their weight behind the strike and taking their seats on the Ulster Workers' Council. The 11 members of Parliament of the Ulster Protestant Parties who had formed the Treble UC coalition had up to that point not supported the strike. For those first few days they had stood off and watched the strike led by trade union officials and paramilitaries within the Loyalist Heartlands to see how it fared. And now they came to take their seats on the UWC and issued their united communique to that effect. In their communique, the combined parties stated that they were appalled, quote, at the intransigence of the Secretary of State, Marilyn Rees, even to the extent of refusing to seek an agreement with no political conditions attached, which would enable essential services to be maintained with the help of the workers concerned. The committee sees this as a rather drastic indication that it is the policy of the government to ride roughshod over the will of the majority of the people of Ulster in the implementation of the Sunningdale Agreement and the 1973 Constitution Act, regardless of the cost. The committee noted with disgust that so-called unionists under the leadership of Faulkner are preparing to defy the will of the people, thus making it inevitable that the present confrontation with the government should take place. The committee in these circumstances has decided to give full support to the Ulster Workers' Council in an all-out effort to bring change in government policy. Members and organisations are asked to give immediate effect to this decision. That this declaration was made in the shadow of the Dublin and Monaghan bombings and amid the absolute revulsion felt by the vast majority of Unionists and Protestants to such atrocities is remarkable and demonstrates the real fear of missing out. These were Ulster's elected representatives. This was there for a bold move. The only explanation for it was the unalloyed support they were now hearing and seeing among their constituents and in the telephone calls bombarding their party offices. They now divined the new reality that this movement had mass support and feared missing out on this particular boat. Even Paisley, who had gone to Canada for a funeral, or the pretext of a funeral, and suspected by many as having absented himself in order to watch and see how the initial days of the stoppage would pan out, 
returned and gave his wholehearted support to the UWC. And the UWC, having support of the paramilitaries on the ground, now clearly a mass movement supported by the majority of Ulster Protestants, now had fully integrated its political representatives, all now sitting round the table plotting actions to thwart the intentions of three governments. And now the Ulster Workers' Council took its final full form. There were those who supported the paramilitaries. There were those who looked to their elected politicians and disdained the paramilitaries. And then there were those who looked for leadership to their trade union officials. Any conflict of feeling was resolved now. And the UWC spoke for all three aspects of Ulster Protestant leadership. Most commentators of the strike agree that what had started off with a degree of marshalling and intimidation at some stage turned into a mass rebellion where the UWC had the support of the overwhelming majority of Ulster Protestants. The only bone of contention is at what stage. And the members of Parliament headed by Craig, Paisley and West were received in a lukewarm fashion because of their failure to support the strikers in the first few days. There was a feeling of opportunism and a history of politicians taking the glory with interviews and sound bites of the hard work of others. Indeed, while the UWC and paramilitaries were in the middle of discussing ways of intensifying the strike, Glenn Barr, the chairman, saw the Reverend Ian Paisley approaching. In relation to the Reverend Ian Paisley, there was a real resentment onto the surface that often came to the fore. At first he had trouble getting through the guards. When he entered the UWC headquarters, the UVF guards were ordered originally not to let him in. And according to Glenn Barr, jeered him, saying, You aren't as big in here as you are out in the street. There's a bigger man than you in there, and if he says you aren't getting in, you aren't getting in. Don Anderson says, That morning Paisley was kept deliberately outside the door. There was suspicion about his journey to Canada to attend the funeral of a friend the previous week. And there were those who thought that the DUP leader had left it the chance to leave the province in those first messy days. He goes on to explain how the three party leaders were ranked in the eyes of the UWC. Bill Craig's stock was highest because they thought that his attitude had at least been more consistent. Harry West, the leader of the Ulster Unionist Party since Faulkner's resignation, was next, partly because he did not try to interfere too much except to champion the plight of farmers. Paisley came bottom and was trusted by the committee members the least. The resentment of Paisley was shown in several ways, such as when Paisley asked for permission to run a bus from the city centre to his church in Ravenhill Road. All bus services, except those serving Catholic areas over which the strike committee had no control, had been brought to a halt. Paisley's request was refused. Andy Terry, the head of the UDA, said that he would reconsider if he was allowed to take the collection in the famous Free Presbyterian manner, that is, silently, banknotes only, in plastic buckets, a wry reference to the imagined vast wealth he was getting from his church. And when he asked for a plane to get him to Parliament in London, one wit dryly observed that he now realised Paisley couldn't actually walk on water like his God had. And nor did Paisley, a narcissistic self-publicist with a bizarre sense of entitlement, help himself. When the meeting broke up for coffee, when Glenn Barr returned to the room, he found Paisley in the chairman's seat. Barr tapped Paisley on the shoulder and said, You might be chairman of the Democratic Unionist Party, but I'm the chairman of the coordinating committee, so move over. Glenn Barr related later that Paisley refused to move from the chairman's seat and a number of UVF men carried him, still in his chair, to the bottom of the table. Paisley complained about a bad back and that he needed the chair, to which Barr stated, 
You can have the chair, but that's my seat. And yet, if you look at the history reels, Paisley, with his narcissistic knack for self-publicity, is prominent everywhere, giving the false impression he was pivotal. Clearly, he wasn't. And the UWC were staggered at his initial behaviour. Because by this time, he was gaining no great purchase among men who regarded him as less than themselves. On the Monday, 20th of May, 1974, heavy Hercules transports flew over the chill, heavy-laden skies of North Belfast, loaded with more troops and equipment, as a spearhead of 500 more British soldiers added to the complement of men enforcing British rule in Ulster. It was an irony of the Cold War that whilst the majority of the British ordnance and armour were in West Germany, the specialist troops and many of the men to man those vehicles were in Northern Ireland. On the subject of the Cold War, I remember a phrase repeated again and again among the more extreme of the paramilitaries in the old part, at that time speculating whether they should declare UDI, or a Unilateral Declaration of Independence and invite in the North Atlantic Soviet fleet. This expressed the degree of disillusionment. Anything was on the table. The other extremists assured each other that they would not become the Palestinians of Western Europe in such an unenviable diaspora. Yet this was mere mutterings of discontent. Ulster in 1974 was still a very Edwardian society. Up until the advent of personalised mass communication, Ulster culturally was England 20 years ago. Even in their very sense of Britishness, which stretched even further back. This Edwardian character stretched in a spectrum from the Viscounts and governors who had ruled them and deserted them two years before, to the serial killers and their butchers with their cleavers and knives who dealt death the innocent Catholics in the rainy, miserable back entries of North Belfast. But amid this maddened, almost Precambrian explosion of political thinking, the UWC were now stepping up their strike. Chastened by the Secretary of State Merlin Reese's snub on the Friday, they now ordered a total stoppage. Now all businesses and all emergency services would open only at the UWC's discretion. The UWC, you see, were aware since the Saturday that the government had a plan to break them. They also knew that a revised phasing in of the Council of Ireland was on the agenda. They knew also that Merlin Reese, the Secretary of State, had taken up a plan for back-to-work marches to be staged on the Tuesday coming, and that he hoped to secure in tandem with the breaking of the strike an agreement to ameliorate, for now, Protestant anger. The UWC were fairly sure that the control of the electrical power was in their hands. However, clandestinely, naval technicians had entered Ballylumford. The guards at the security gate and others within had reported what they were up to. This suited the UWC, who had based their whole impact on the unworkability of the station by outsiders, however qualified. But the response to this subversion was twofold. Firstly, they ordered the reduction of power to 30%. And as the power workers dutifully wound down the turbines, Ulster, as the Belfast Telegraph would announce later that day, was plunged into chaos. Secondly, they decided that now the strike was to be stepped up. By the end of the day, the Belfast Telegraph on the 19th of May, no friend of the UWC, ran the headline in big black bold letters, Ulster on the blockade. The theme of that day was the presence of the two Sioux helicopters that hovered all day over the city of Belfast and observed the rebellion in full swing below. Fisk takes up the story. That Sunday, Hugh Petry, Andy Terry and Bob Marno and the rest of the UWC had ordered the erection of 100 roadblocks to choke all commerce 
still outside the control. By 8am, swarms of youths, paramilitaries who had conveyed the orders, along with the masses of young tartans, appeared and in strength erected the barricades. They erected barricades not only around their own areas, but erected barricades across the very arterial routes that entered their capital to complete the chokehold. As the paramilitaries marched in formation, enforcing and policing the closure of shops and warehouses and factories, lorry drivers were forced out of their cabs and the heavy vehicles and vans overturned or jackknifed in the barricades throughout the city. The Telegraph reported that the situation brought about by day six of the strike has reached crisis proportions in the early hours of today, shortly after the UWC warned in a dramatic midnight statement that the commercial and industrial life of the province would be paralysed. Nearly every main road in Belfast was blocked by hijacked cars, buses and lorries, while at least four towns in the country were completely blocked. Club-wheeling youths in paramilitary uniforms hijacked vehicles and blockaded virtually all the main roads leading into the city. Even some of the thousands who set out to walk to work were threatened and turned back. By the afternoon, the city centre was almost deserted. Bangor, Carrickfergus, Newton Ours and Larne were sealed off by hijacked vehicles from early morning. In Larne, the Telegraph mentioned groups of men using crowbars to smash the driver's windows of vehicles and putting those two on the barricades. The RUC, they said, cleared them by 10.30am, but they went up elsewhere to the same effect. In Newton Abbey, several roads were blocked and all movement of cars in and out stopped. As for Belfast, quote, virtually all roads through strong loyalist areas in the city were blocked by 7am, including the Woodstock, Craiga, Castle Ray, Beersbridge, Shankill, Ballygo Martin, Fourth River Roads and the approaches from the Sydenham Bypass. Three ranks of men blocked the Newton Ards Road at various points, causing checks to vehicles and causing queues in which many cars reversed or turned back. Cars were checked and the occupants required to produce passes to show their occupation. Those deemed non-essential were turned back, only doctors, nurses and lawyers being let through. The number of essential workers who got through was patchy, as they were checked in their civilian clothes, although ambulances, fire engines, RUC Land Rovers and British Army patrols were allowed to pass unhindered. In many areas the barricades were cleared, but by midday again going up. There were bomb hoaxes stopping the train lines. There were suspected devices such as a van left with a fire extinguisher tied under it to occupy and divert the security forces with the added benefit of getting the security forces themselves to cordon off roads whilst bomb disposal experts were called in. A deputation from the Bakery Employers Council asked the UWC for safe passage for their delivery vehicles. The co-op sent out 20 milk vans and none returned. Hospitals were reduced to a and &E maternity wards. All postal services were halted bar emergency telegrams. Social service payments were buckling in the collapse of the system. There were no attempts on the part of the army or RUC to interfere, however. And as Fisk relates, by midday, there were twice as many roadblocks in the city as there were on the previous day. The stranglehold was an act of complete defiance and a demonstration of power at the same time. The RUC had neither the manpower nor the resolve to stop them and to be fair, even though they emanated from the same communities that were doing this, even though during the 1973 strike, Ulster's Day of Shame, no police officer had answered Craig's call to strike, this time it was different. Neither was a political strike against the hated, undemocratic regime that had been imposed from above. And what the senior officers 
Some of them ashamed to bear witness to such disorder said, and what the rank and file did, had by now become two totally different propositions. The army were by now convinced they could not and should not break a political strike, and whilst they waited with concern for a lead from the RUC, the RUC were, for the most part, rudderless. A total of 862 blockages were erected during the strike, according to the RUC, and they claimed that they cleared 300 of them, but this includes human chains that reformed after the police left. All of them recognised it was difficult, to say the least, to take on a mass rebellion by a political majority. And the army, with the rear to the ground, had educated themselves in the strength of the resolve of the strikers and the mass base of their support, which was growing by the day. They were holding off for direction from the RUC, but the RUC, overstretched, had turned to a great amount of laudable humanitarian work instead. This included transport of bottled gas to those who needed it, whip rounds for the elderly and vulnerable patients in Antrim, getting essential vehicles working in the absence of the AA, and more pointedly, overstretching themselves to defend Roman Catholic homes in Protestant areas. But as the UWC stated clearly, they had no intention of attacking any Roman Catholic homes. The RUC were a professional force, but this was a strange era for policing. There are instances where they disbanded Protestant gangs, policing their areas with batons but charged no one. Some disappeared and even acted as bodyguards to their relatives on the Ulster Workers' Council. Others tried to enforce the law and yet others could be seen by foreign journalists standing and having a bit of crack with the protesters at the barricades, their hands tucked comfortably into their armoured vests. Most barricades were unopposed, but at some barricades masked men actually fought with those trying to get to work without evidence to show they were essential workers. Or refusing to submit to UWC authority. A group of gynaecologists were refused passage outside Moyle Hospital as the strikers had been told that only doctors and nurses were to be allowed past the barricade outside and took the diktat literally. And so the barricades went up all over Belfast and then they set fire to the barricades. The Telegraph reported a single man turning back people at D Street, human chains blocking the roads at Hollywood Arches a motorcyclist revved his engine and drove right through them into another barricade 200 yards away, where he was pulled off his motorbike, surrounded by 30 men, who, after interrogating him, sent him back the way he had come. One by one, those in the barricades set the barricades on fire. Firstly, at Church Road in Carmoney, then at the junction of the Antrim and Serpentine Roads, then at White Rock Road. Two lorries were jammed across the Albert Bridge Road and Templemore Avenue, blocking the traffic. The 300 strong fleet of city bus vehicles were pulled again, except for those that serve as Catholic areas. As Fisk relates, and I quote him in full, From 10 miles away it was possible to see the long column of brown and jet black smoke twisting wearily into the dawn sky over Belfast, as UDA men set fire to stolen lorries, cars and even bicycles on the makeshift barricades. In the Protestant estates, large numbers of young UDA men, most of them wearing combat jackets, abandoned the more traditional roadblocks of stolen vehicles and instead formed human chains across the roads to prevent anyone driving to work. They were soon joined, especially in Rathcool, by crowds of women. But such activities were not confined to loyalist suburbs. Protestants came out of Sandy Row shortly before 9 o'clock and started a series of hijackings around Shaftesbury Square. Vans and cars were driven across the side streets and their tires deflated. The barricades were then reinforced with sheets of metal, wooden planking, dustbins and old bedsteads. 
Mass UDA men told the driver in Great Victoria Street to leave his cab and then swung his vehicle and trailer across a road, normally one of the busiest in Belfast, between the regional showroom and the office of the AA. Beside York Road Railway Station in North Belfast, where trains normally left for Coleraine, Derry and the towns of Western Ulster, Protestants set fire to overturned cars and effectively cut off the shore road and part of the docks. A gang of youths stood shoulder to shoulder behind the fires, lest anybody should be brave enough to try and make his way past the side of the station. As Don Anderson relates, those motorists who argued with the strikers at the barricades often found their vehicle becoming part of the barricade. Some, according to the Telegraph, cheated the day by setting off early or entering the city centre through the security gates from the Catholic areas, giving insufficient thought to the risky logistics of getting back. Fisk goes on to relate that the security forces went through what he terms a ghostly routine of their on-towards security duties as if nothing was really happening. Fisk gives a clear picture of the dynamic on the ground that Monday morning. He speaks of a green army Land Rover gingerly squeezing between the gaps of the barricade on their normal routine patrols and British Army foot patrols carrying out their duties without interfering with the activities of UDA men. On two occasions they were seen sharing out fags to those UDA men manning the barricades and having crack with them in Albion and D Street across the city. He reports an army Land Rover sweeping past the Europa Hotel on Great Victoria Street as soldiers held on to the fittings and a corporal, rifle in hand, called on his two-way pie radio for instructions negotiating his way past the huge grain van now forming a barricade and whilst international journalists and UDA men watched the Land Rover disappeared only to come back round Ventry Street and negotiate their way round the other side of the barricade before roaring off amid the jeers of UDA men. He even tells of being stopped by a vehicle checkpoint manned by British soldiers of the 1st Battalion Royal Horse Artillery on the Lisburn Road above the city hospital. He watches astonished as the soldiers searched his vehicle obstinately refusing to acknowledge a band of UDA men, one in a balaclava, hijack a lorry directly behind them. While being directed to open the boot of his car, Fisk pointed out the hijacking being done in full view. I see, sir, the soldier replied, studiously ignoring the commotion behind him. Can I see your licence? As Fisk left the checkpoint, the hijackers waved him away and he turned towards Queen's University. He looked back to see soldiers still, quote, ignoring the hijacking and continuing busily, to check licences and search cars as if the UDA were invisible. Fisk reports an instance of one very senior RUC officer under pressure to explain the storm at officials why nothing was being done and upon being told that the UDA had erected at least 100 roadblocks and human chains across the roads at the top of this, he shouted, there are no barricades still standing and stormed out. Governance of a modern state had come off its hinges and the UWC were moving deftly along the fault lines of authority and taking full advantage. And as for those two Sioux heavy helicopters hovering and reverberating as their blades whirled heavily over Belfast from the Shankle Road through the docks and overall Belfast, the sound of their roaring blades rotating according to Fisk, echoing like machine guns against the buildings in the empty streets, their purpose was reconnaissance. By midday the first batch of pictures were developed and presented to a high level meeting of military intelligence and the GOC in Thiefful Barracks. Several officers of 39th Brigade were shocked to find that the paramilitaries at the order of the UWC were operating at least 170 physical roadblocks in Belfast alone. And nor was the mass disruption confined to Belfast. As Fisk relates, 
Outside Belfast too, there were roadblocks being set up, sometimes made of barrels, poles and timber. Larne, Carrick, Fergus and other parts of the East Antrim Industrial Belt were closed off by UVF men. While farmers helped the blockade, the county downtowns of Newtonards and Bangor. Some of these men were operating under the orders of Colonel Basil Brush, whose Down Orange Welfare were also blockading country lanes near Hillsborough and Ballynahenge. Just south of Belfast, a steamroller was used to stop traffic. And whenever motorists did approach any of the barriers, young men demanded to know their occupation. If deemed essential, the workers were allowed through to argue their case at the next roadblock. Many nurses, doctors and teachers were turned away. And even Ernie Bird, his wife taking her children to school, was given abuse after being forced out of her vehicle. At Hawthornden Road, Fisk tells us, such tactics were vociferously and very publicly condemned by Harry Patterson, Hugh Murray and Glenn Barr, pointing to their essential user lists, not realising that they had become a focus not only for a national rebellion, but to the pent-up frustration at the years of international vilification, now mightily and irrevocably unleashed. They said as much in radio and television. They voiced their objection to any of this behaviour although with less than 30% of power being generated as the power stations were irrevocably being run slowly down. Few people got to watch the UWC men being interviewed. All this presented a real challenge to the worldview of those in Stormont Castle in the executive. Faulkner went to see the Secretary of State, Merlin Rees, several times to repeatedly voice his concern about the no-go area that Protestant Ulster had quickly become. On one occasion, he visited Rees in the company of a senior civil servant. On Rees's desk were large army maps. Rees talked of the barricades being cleared. Faulkner relates in his memoirs that he pointed to the office block that housed hundreds of civil servants in Dundonald House, a mile away from the executive seat of government in Northern Ireland. If you go down to Dundonald House, Faulkner protested, you won't get out and nobody will get in because there's a barricade there. Faulkner knew this because... The BBC news bulletins were more up to date than the army's maps. Rees scuttled off, then came back armed with information from his private office that yes, there was indeed a barricade there, but that the army were quote-unquote negotiating with the Protestants there to have the barricade removed. Faulkner then raised the issue of a further barricade at Money Ray, and Rees, as an outsider, had no idea where Money Ray was. After further consultation with his private office, Merlin Rees accepted Faulkner was correct and that there was indeed an additional barricade there. Their being kept on the back foot reduced the response to a shambles, and in this, the UWC, overcompensating as ever, had struck with a remorseless repost that had all the hallmarks of a determination to be round up and tried rather than surrender. <laughs>